All right, let's go ahead. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy, and I'm going to read uh, just verses 1 through 5 uh, of the text, and we will uh, we'll get into it from there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 5, that's as far as we will get, at least in the teaching time tonight. Uh, And if you want, let's say, a main idea or a main thrust of these verses, uh, it is all about a family affair. And that is uh, Paul and his, let's say, legitimate family relationship to Timothy, which is outlined there uh, in verse 2, where he calls him a genuine child of his. Uh, As we're moving through all of uh, 1 Timothy, by the way, it's probably worth throwing out uh, one main idea that we're going to be kind of working through in the whole of the pastoral epistles, all of them, uh, which is all of them are about what's called the healthy church. So what does it mean to have a church that's healthy? Uh, what, is, what does that encompass? So we're going to see a lot of things. Uh, tonight we're going to see how the healthy church relates to sound doctrine. Uh, but particularly, Paul's going to use this metaphor uh, of uh, a family. So the healthy church, in some sense, is a family ordeal. It's a family relationship together. Uh, and Paul elucidates this a little bit by both his charge to Timothy and his relationship to Timothy. And also, as you'll see as we move through 1 Timothy, um, this family development is going gonna, is gonna to relate to Timothy's burden to not just teach sound doctrine so that he can be sound, but to teach sound doctrine so that people in the family aren't lost or that people in the family uh, remain till the end. So this is the goal of, of Paul's exhortation in his writing. And as you'll see, it's the responsibility that he gives uh, there to Timothy. So uh, let's just begin uh, by starting in verse 1, and we'll see how this whole thing gets developed. So the first thing Paul does is he introduces himself, as he does in all his letters, in almost the exact same way. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, uh, according to the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. So this is, a, is an interesting uh, introduction. What's, what's normative about it, though, is the, the first couple parts. So Paul, an apostle, right? He's, he always calls himself an apostle. This is, uh, in, in a sense, an authority claim. So when Paul writes a letter... You want to know, why should I listen to Paul, right? Why would I listen to Paul as opposed to, well, these other local teachers who we're going to be introduced to in a little bit who teach differently than Paul? Why would I listen to you and not someone else? And Paul's claim uh, that he's going to develop in other parts of his letters is that his claim to be an apostle, his apostleship, uh, is a central, uh, let's say, dogmatic stance that he takes. So uh, if Paul is indeed an apostle, you have to listen to him because when he teaches, it is though God himself is teaching. And this is kind of the way Paul treats his own writing in this letter, is that if you disagree with Paul, it's not you squaring off against Paul, it's you squaring off against God himself. So he's going to establish this in the first couple of verses. Now notice how he does it. We almost miss it because it's so tightly wound. He says he's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he's an apostle associated with Christ. But how is he appointed to apostleship? He was appointed... Uh, in accord with the command of God, or according to the the authority of God, or the appointment of God. So who put Paul in the position of apostle? Was it uh, some human council? 
uh, was it that Paul uh, graduated from a seminary and he earned a degree and now he, he goes forward as an apostle? Uh, did he graduate, uh, let's say, with summa cum laude from the best university in Jerusalem? None of those are part of qual Paul's qualifications. You will see this, uh, I think it's in Galatians, where he actually rejects all of those qualifications to his authority and his righteousness. And here he's saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the will of God, the command and the appointment of God himself. And who is God? Uh, this is not God uh, who is Zeus. This is not God who is Aphrodite. Uh, this is not any of those Roman gods. Uh, this isn't even to be mistaken with the, the version of God that the Jewish people worship. He's going to say this is, this is God who is our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. So this is the God who we know through Christ Jesus. So he's making, a, if you, in some sense, a Christian claim uh, to be an apostle, which is different and to separate himself from, let's say, a Jewish claim towards authority uh, or a pagan claim to authority. He's not a Gnostic, right? He's, he's making a claim from authority according to his apostleship uh, related to God, who is the one who appoints him. So this is, this is Paul establishing his, his, the reason you should listen to him, okay? And so he starts it off there, and then he's going to immediately turn that uh, and start exhorting Timothy uh, to essentially carry on this apostleship authority in his own ministry. And you'll see this uh, in verse 2. He writes to Timothy, uh, my true child or my genuine child, my genuine son, uh, in the faith. So Timothy is his, let's say, legitimate offspring. So if you were talking about spiritual family, spiritual father, Paul is Timothy's spiritual father, and Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. But he's not just an illegitimate son. He's not a, he's not a son who's born in an illegitimate way. Timothy is the, the true-born son of Paul, or the, the authentic or genuine son of Paul. That's an important uh, important thing to note, because something that uh, is developed in the Old Testament and gets developed in the New Testament is this ability to have at one point in time been into the family, but have been birthed into the family in an illegitimate way. So Jesus will talk about this when he talks about, I am the shepherd, I guard the door to the sheepfold. If anyone comes into the sheepfold by another way, they are an illegitimate member of the family. They are, they are not a true worker, they are, they are an imposter. So there's legitimate ways to be part of the, the sheepfold, and there's illegitimate ways, right? Here Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you are my legitimate, my genuine child. So you are, you are in the family in a legitimate way. And this is going to become important because the very next thing he's going to do after he, he talks to Timothy as being a legitimate child is he's going to have to turn to false teachers. He's going to say, these are illegitimate teachers. These are people who are illegitimately pretending as though they carry authority within the church. So he's saying to Timothy, my genuine son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's two times in two verses he mentions both the Father and the Son. And these, the, the terms that he strings together, they aren't just like casual greetings, grace, mercy, and peace. These are, let's say, the basis of Paul's theology of how we are justified. So you have grace uh, from God. Well, that's very interesting because God gives grace to those whom he loves. This is something scripture establishes. So when he writes to Timothy, uh, he's addressing the, the church that, that Timothy is going to be, let's say, uh, working in, in this letter. Uh, they, they have grace from God. So God gives them something they don't deserve, which is the blessing of grace, the, re the restoration of relationship, all that is offered to them in the gospel. He gives them mercy. This mercy is also from God. Uh, mercy is withholding uh, something that we, in fact, do deserve. So if grace is giving us something we don't deserve, Mercy is, is God withholding things that we do deserve, such as the punishment for sin, which is owed to us. 
So God exercises grace to us in giving us things and blessings that we don't deserve, but he also exercises mercy towards us by not punishing us in the way that we do deserve to be punished. And then both of those things together, grace and mercy, establish our peace that we have before God. And the peace that we have with God is the only kind of peace that matters. So you can have false peace with people in this world. You can have true peace with people in this world. Uh, You can have false peace with God, and you can have true peace with God. And true peace with God is the only kind of peace that is worth having in life. A false peace with God would be like, uh, you don't deal with God, God doesn't deal with you, and you think you're okay because you're not being actively punished or anything like that, but you're not, let's say, building a relationship with God, right? That would be a false kind of peace. A ceasefire is not the same thing as peace. You want any examples of that, just go to the U.S. and Russia in the Cold War. There was no active war lines, but there was definitely a war going on, right? It just wasn't a military, uh, a giant military war that was waged. So we have peace with God on the basis of his grace to us and his mercy to us that gives us his peace. And this peace is from God the Father and, in this case, from Christ Jesus our Lord. So the peace of God comes from God through Christ Jesus. And as we'll see later in the letter, it is mediated by the work of the Spirit to establish that. So Paul writes this letter and then he turns with his instructions right away. And in some sense, uh, I'm shortchanging you because the first uh, 11 or so verses is in classic Pauline fashion, one gigantic run-on sentence uh, in in the text. But we're going to cut off that run-on sentence in verse 5 just so we can try to group some ideas together. But it is really all the way from verse 3 all the way to verse 11 is just one giant sentence. Uh, And Paul Paul tends to do that. That's actually not his longest run-on sentence in his letters. Uh, Ephesians, I believe, is is longer than that. One gigantic run-on sentence. But uh, here we have it. So we're going to just look at the first bit of this run-on sentence. And you see in verse 3, he's going to exhort Timothy essentially to do the job of a pastor. He says, Just as I urged you while I was traveling to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, in order that you may command certain people not to teach differently. So the basis of Paul's command uh, is he's urging Timothy to stay. Uh, He's he's telling him to remain. And he's saying that you may command certain people not to teach differently. So job description number one, the first command Timothy has, is not just to stay, but to stay and, let's say, rebuke false teaching. Or at this point, maybe we shouldn't say false teaching yet. We can say different teaching. Okay, So rebuke those who teach differently, and rebuke them and tell them not to teach differently. So tell them not to do the thing that they're doing. And and what does teaching differently look like? He's going to elucidate that in verse 4. Or give heed to mythical tales or unending genealogies, the kind which produce contentious disputes rather than God's plan, which is known by faith. So you have uh, Paul uh, exhorting the church, uh, or exhorting Timothy, and he's telling him essentially his job description. And his job description starts off in verse 3 with, uh, well, if you were to write a job description for a pastor, what would you write? We would typically think about people skills and and things like that, uh, someone who's charismatic. Paul thinks command number one for Timothy in terms of job description is to rebuke false teaching, rebuke different teaching, okay? So Timothy's number one, let's say, command, first command from Paul is that. And then he's going to be specific. He's not just going to say rebuke false teaching generally and then not get specific. He's actually going to press on a lot of the pain points that we're going to find in the letter. Uh, that means anyone who, who wants to go with myths or mythical tales, uh, rebuke those people from talking about these mythical tales. 
because they are not helpful, they are not edifying, they're not building up the body, okay? So people who teach about these things, or let's say are experts in the myths, but they, they're not building up the body, they're not edifying the church, they're not teaching about Christ and God and justification, well, these people ought to be rebuked from that teaching and told to teach uh, soundly, told to teach truly. So don't give heed to mythical tales or uh, unending genealogies, uh, endless genealogies, I think as the ESV puts it there. Um, you have uh, this, now we, it is important to know, genealogies in scripture are important, okay? In Genesis, there's a lot of genealogies. There's genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, and actually all throughout the Old Testament. Those genealogies are good and right, um, but everything in its proper proportion, okay? If you devote yourself to the endless study of genealogies, thinking that you will find in there some mystery that no one else has ever seen before, Paul's saying you're looking in the wrong place. So people who devote themselves to this endless speculation of genealogies, which seems to have been a problem in the first century, um, he's saying don't do that. Now, uh, that's probably not a problem in the church today, the endless study of the genealogical lists in Scripture, not in the Protestant church by any means. Uh, in, in, in some sense, we could, we could use a, a good dose of struggling with this before we would need that kind of rebuke. But his, his command to devote yourself, let's say, to the central things of Scripture and not to the peripheral things, this is something we can learn a lot from. Because there's plenty of things that the evangelical church obsesses over, which are not central things, which are not primary things, and which the evangelical church will obsess over to the point of it's an unending uh, postulation. It's an unending thought process. It's an unending think. But it's never arriving. It's never edifying. It's not growing anyone. There are a lot of people who are experts in seemingly non-important topics in Scripture, but they have very little to say about justification or salvation or encouragement or edification of the saints. So, so avoid that kind of stuff, okay? And if you find yourself, let's say, fascinated by something that won't actually edify your life as a Christian, it's not the kind of learning you want to pursue, okay? Scripture is always for the building up of the church. This is what we're going to find as the true teaching. So what is the not, the different teaching is stuff that doesn't build up the church. The good teaching is stuff that, in fact, does build up the church. So you have this, uh, the, the danger of the mythical tale, the danger of this ancestral account. Um, and then uh, we might say the danger of the, the contentious dispute, or the all, let's say all of these things together to the point of a contentious dispute. Um, this is Paul uh, on, on full blast basically saying, uh, don't argue about things that you shouldn't argue about. Now, this is Paul who we know writes things like, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, or if anyone teaches something different, let him be accursed. Uh, so Paul is, is not saying disputes aren't helpful. Okay? We can't press his teaching into that corner. What Paul is saying is certain kind of disputes are not helpful. Okay? Some disputes are not edifying. Some disputes are not helpful for the church, but that does not mean all disputes are unedifying or unhelpful for the church. Because, look back at verse 3 at the end of it, where he commands Timothy to confront people, essentially dispute with people, to not teach differently. So Paul has told Timothy, don't, you need to dispute with people who are doing these things, and dispute with them not to dispute about pointless things. So there's disputes that the church can have, which are good and edifying, and there are disputes that the church should not have, which are not helpful, okay? Um, yeah, there's, there's much more to say on that. We will see that unfold in the letter of 1 Timothy. But keep that idea in mind. Not all disputes are unhelpful. Some are actually edifying for the church. Some disputes, like some surgeries, when you cut things away, makes the body more healthy. So it is with these disputes in the church. But that doesn't mean you just cut every patient you see open, right? So you don't just have endless disputes. So, uh, the kind which uh, produce contentious disputes of so these things, uh, he says, rather than that, 
Um, there's, this, there's this thing known as God's plan that is known by faith, or, or things that defer or deviate from God's plan, which is known by faith. And what is this plan, which is known by faith? Uh, verse 5, the goal of this command, the goal of Paul's command to Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a genuine faith. So the goal of, of Paul's teaching to Timothy, the goal of it, uh, or we might say the aim of his teaching, is, is the building up of the church with love, uh, the building up of the church unto a pure heart, pure love, which emanates from a pure heart, and a good conscience, which we're going to find out in, in the letter of Timothy, has a lot to do with consistency between what you say and what you do, uh, and then a genuine faith. So he calls First Timothy a genuine child, and then he says the goal of Timothy's teaching is to make let's say, other genuine children of the faith, okay? So Timothy is the genuine son of Paul, verse 2, and then Paul encourages Timothy to, to teach in such a way that he will grow people to being those who possess genuine faith. And what we're going to see, unlike, I think, a false teaching that we have today in the church, unlike a false teaching which says that genuine faith is something you possess at one moment in time, and if you got the right amount at that point, you have it or you don't for the rest of your life. A genuine faith is, is something that you abide in, as is true in the teaching of Paul to Timothy. As he's going to exhort Timothy in chapter 4, uh, you need to teach soundly so that by so doing you will save not only yourself but also those who listen to you. So genuine faith is not something you have at one point in time and you could lose or could not lose. That's just not what faith is about. Genuine faith is something you abide in and that in some sense, Timothy is saving his hearers on a constant basis by his teaching to them. Uh, how do you know what's not genuine faith? It's the kind of faith that you can lose or the kind of faith you can abandon. Uh, and that's what Paul's going to point to when he, he points to people who leave or who engage in these false, false teachings. They don't have genuine faith as evidenced by the fact that they are currently apostate. They are currently illegitimate children. And to Timothy, he basically says, you need to grow people in such a healthy kind of way that they do in fact have a genuine faith and they are indeed your genuine children. So in summary, okay, the first five verses of this text lays out in some sense a thesis of, of the whole letter. Um, and you're not going to, don't just take my word for it, we're going to read it here in a, a few minutes. And you're going to see these themes develop as we go. But one of the themes which I think you ought to pay attention to and I want to see into your mind is the, the, the nature of a healthy church being a family. Okay, the, the healthy church is a family affair. It is a family ordeal. If a church is not seen as a family, let's say we see it first as a business or first as uh, any number of other structural things you can think of, a friend group, that's not what a church is. A church is a family. And what marks that is the desire to war with people for their benefit. Okay? Like uh, a parent would do sitting down with a child who needs to be rebuked so that they might grow into a mature child. Okay, that's something you would see in a family, but usually if you think of a friend group, your average friend group in the United States, that kind of stuff wouldn't happen, right? You just let the person be the person, and because if you have conflict with them, they might just abandon you and ghost you on text message and not talk to you ever again, okay? So the church is not a friend group. The church is not an organization. The church is a family, which is willing to confront so that they can edify one another. It's willing to suffer with one another, uh, and they're willing to, uh, with, with sorrow and with, with care, uh, diligently guard the boundaries of that family. You wouldn't invite anyone over to dinner. 
you wouldn't just have anyone sleep over in your house. Okay? If you're a family, you're going to guard that family fold carefully. Right? Think about how, how parents, if they're doing their job well, would guard uh, who, their, who their daughter would marry potentially in a future spouse. Right? You're not just going to add anyone to your family who you want to. You're going to guard the borders of your family well if you're doing your job. Uh, just like brothers wouldn't let their sister date whoever she wanted to, right? They would guard that, that door well. Uh, so it is with the church. You don't just let anyone in and hang out and pretend like they belong there. Uh, you, in some sense, have to guard and constantly exercise that kind of prudence as you, as you go about life. Now, we're going to see that has to be done in gentleness and care and, and with a really pastoral heart. Uh, but that is a part of what it means to be a family. And then the last piece that you'll see traced through the letter, but I think is introduced here, is the goal of a family is, is the bearing of children. Okay? What I mean by this is Paul says Timothy is his spiritual son, his genuine son. And at the end of verse 5 there, you see his goal to Timothy, the goal of this command is to grow those who will also have genuine faith. Okay? So a church, a healthy church, will not only be a family kind of structure, but it will also be a fruitful kind of family structure. It will not be barren. It's kind of the point. Uh, we know this because in the Great Commission, God tells us to be uh, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but he does it in different words. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay? So that's what the, the commission of the church is. And, and Paul's putting that on the ground for Timothy by saying, grow people up in such a way that they will have this genuine discipled faith within them. So the family is, I think, a good model, at least as introduced here, of what a healthy church should and ought to look like. And then we'll see those false substitutes as we kind of move, move throughout the letter. So with that, uh, let me just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will uh, continue in our time together. Lord, you are faithful indeed to us who are uh, weak uh, and who often struggle to um, hold fast to faith as we ought. Uh, we confess, uh, as Paul here exhorts Timothy, we often fall short of that command to hold fast to faith in that way. Uh, there's much in this letter which will um, cause us to go to you in prayer and confession. Uh, and yet, Lord, uh, we ask for your grace that we can see all the beauty that's in this letter. Um, you would encourage us, that you would by your grace strengthen us, that you would build us up and edify us into your body uh, so that we might be true heirs, genuine children of your family, and we may be found in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.